Hello, Mav. Hello, Eddie. How are you? I'm doing really well, thank you. How are you? Yeah, slightly roasting in this. Slightly weather. roasted. I'm lightly roasted as well. I'm actually a fairly decent colour of most parts. I I really suffer from um the malady that you get in the summer when you live a slightly agricultural life, which is the Neapolitan tan. Farmer's tan, we call yeah, it. Yeah, because well, yeah, that that's yeah. Okay, I'll take that. I'm not exactly a farm, but yeah, um, because different bits are more available. Yeah than others <laughs> different durations so it's a definite like face v-line um the first three quarters of the arm but because i'm a horse rider a slightly white hand because that's had the glove on it yeah that's well i get i get a um brown uh right arm and elbow from sticking my elbow out of the window of the car because that's what you see yeah <laughs> so but, you've got the tracker not, tan but not on. obviously the left side <laughs> yeah Okay, not just me. I've had the most amazing week. Can I tell you about it? Do a bit? tell me about it. Oh your my goodness! Week. So it's just been great. I've done so much this week. Um, well, well, I've done so much in like an experience kind of way. I mean, the house is falling down. I haven't cleaned it. It's really showing, and there's no food in the fridge. But my experiences have been amazing. So on Monday, I got to take part in like a a fashion photo shoot. Oh wow! Yeah, so my hairdresser entered a competition and wanted me to be a model, mm. which is why I've got pink hair, talking to you now. Yeah. It's much less pink than it was. It was really vibrantly pink on Monday. And um, so I went in and spent the day getting doled up, had more makeup on than I've ever had on in my life, because I'm not a very makeup-y person, no. you know, like a bit of Mackie and some mascara in eyeshadow. Yeah. And I'm kind of done. Um, so, but yeah, I had to. I have like this little cute outfit thing, and they put loads of shimmer stuff in my arms. And then, and then I learned that there is so much more to taking a photograph than just looking at the camera. Yeah. So there was this image that I was supposed to copy of this really beautiful girl looking tremendously moody and mysterious at the camera. So then, for the first photo, I just kind of stared at the camera, and it looked exactly like a mugshot. <laughs> <laughs> it's awful so then I had to be really schooled in like how to arch your back and how to look down and then look up and and we got some fairly passable photographs in the end so yeah so that was my cool experience for Monday just um, just if I can if I can just kind of chip in a bit there yeah in a few years ago when they were young my girls or five of the six were um had their photos taken by Mario Testino for the Burberry campaign wow and what was fascinating, apart from the fact it was it was a magical world, it was just like a day out of time. Yeah. One of the things that was amazing to me and actually quite comforting was how they got how he got such great photographs was taking so many. So those were it was just must have been one of the last still thirty five mil photo shoots, and he had filled right. the back of a transit van with car wow. uh, canisters of 35mm film. Incredible. So, yeah. And every time he was taking a photograph, two assistants were loading up other cameras. Gosh. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's so, a so, Burberry. So I can't there's, claim there's, Burberry. You're right. There's more to this game than meets the eye. Oh, my but goodness. It was so complicated. Oh, the things you had to think about and just how to hold yourself. And I, I'm not, um, I'm not, someone who's comfortable having their photo taken I, I sort of go into sort of rigor mortis as soon as there's a camera in my way it's horrible um but yeah it was uh, that was well, that's that amazing. does sound great fun 
It was great fun. I mean, it was kind of high fashion hair. So to, to my eyes, we all looked really bizarre. And I've never, I mean, I've never had a false lash on in my life. No. So so that was difficult. Yeah, she put them on and then went, oh, you can open your eyes now. And I was sat there thinking, do you know, I really don't know if I can because it seems super heavy. And then to, um, oh, so here, here's my first Terry Pratchett quote of the show. There will be more. I'd imagine um, that there's a scene where he describes, I can't remember who he describes wearing makeup, but he says that she looked like two flies that crashed into a fruit bowl. <laughs> and, that, and that's what I felt that I looked like with all this makeup on, but it was just great. Uh, and then um, on Tuesday, I went into London to see a band that I've been a huge fan of for a long time, Coheed and Cambria. They were playing in Kentish town and it was fantastic again just to be back in that sort of environment because I really haven't interacted with the world very much mm. post-COVID at all. Um, so to go out and be among the world again was great. And it, it really made me appreciate growing up with a band because I can remember concerts when I was a teenager and what that would be like, lots of shoving, lots of mosh pits, everyone very full on. Mm. But of course... I was at a gig with all the people that were having that experience at the same time as me. So we all still like to have fun, but yeah. we all need to be careful about our back. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. But there was none of the shopping. It was a really yes. nice experience. It was very cool. It was very, very cool. And then what else did I do? Something. Yeah, I've been teaching tonight, which was just lovely. My my really good crowd of people and some of them now becoming quite advanced. So yeah, it's just been pretty magical. I'm very behind, but I it's been a great week well i think you're allowed to be behind on things like that i i i have got plenty of food in the house but most of it is off yeah well there's that too which is the yeah. same as not having it right <laughs> yeah um yes but uh actually i i've had a, a a great weekend um because i'm the chair of a local literary festival and it was a huge blast and that leads me on to the first thing i wanted to talk about tonight which is um Ways of saying thank you. Oh, gosh, yeah. And I realise I'm not particularly good at saying thank you because I, when I say what I genuinely feel, I sound gushing and insincere, I think. So I'm trying to work on, this is my, oh, so something okay. I've learned is that I, the thing I've learned this week is that I need to learn to work on my thanking. So do you feel like you're gushing and insincere because someone's told you that or is it just an inner? No, it's it's actually I am naturally like a hugely tiggerish person, as you know. So um, if I think something is brilliant, I'll say it's brilliant. Yeah. And I, I feel slightly like my tiggerishness has been undermined by insincere people. Got it. Because... because when I say it's brilliant, it's because I mean it's brilliant. But if someone else has had the experience where they have had the last dozen people that said it was brilliant didn't really mean it was brilliant at all, but right. were just being over the top. Um, so, so, uh, so I'm just kind of thinking about how I moderate, perhaps, and then I think, damn it, why should I? I'm sincere. I, that, that was my first thought when you started talking, because if you are tiggerish and if you if your natural way is to express yourself very fully and and I do know you to be very sincere yeah then I don't really see what the problem is with that unless of course it's making someone visually visibly 
uncomfortable. Well, I just hope it, it it's okay with people that know me because they know that this is what I'm like. Um, I, 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 the older I get, the better I get at, get it at avoiding things that I'm not likely to love. So I find myself in circumstances where I'm wildly happy because everything's brilliant, yeah? Or I'm at home talking but, but to But what's cat. your concern, though? Well, what, well, what, what makes you think that that's my, not appropriate? My, my concern is that if I bounce up to somebody and says, you were brilliant, you are absolutely brilliant, right? Um, do they think I am just going through some rigmarole that I always say, or um, do they think that they are brilliant? Because I hope. But that's not your problem. No, except I don't want. I, I don't. I want for people to feel, uh, to feel that I have just got this kind of slightly uh, packed way of being enthusiastic. Um, I mean. I hope I'm not, but uh, you know, I it, I find that as I say, as I avoid more and more of the things yeah. that I don't like. So, for example, I heard over the weekend a fantastic description. It sounds an absolutely terrible sport, but apparently there was a sport in Germany in the 17th and 18th century called fox tossing. Oh my God! What people are just terrible. It's yeah and, and basically what happened you used to do this like when you were dressed up for a formal dinner you, right. you'd, you'd play it a gentleman and lady would play this in a team one would stand at each end of effectively a tennis racket a tennis net and a whole load of wild animals would be released and the idea was to tauten up the tennis net really quickly so that the fox got tossed into the air it, there was a case of a, a German nobleman who had, who played this wrong with a wild cat and ended up seriously injured. And I'm Good. So, so bad. Good. Yeah. That's a ghastly thing to do. Uh, oh my but, god. But it's it's just the point is it is just yeah. so it's just a funny concept. And it, it, oh no, I could like yeah. I, I chuckled and then was revulsed by myself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, the having. So, uh, talking to a chap who's written a brilliant chap, Edward Hitchens, who's written this book about peculiar sports that people no longer practice, mm. and fox tossing was obviously one of them. And I was slightly skeptical about fox tossing, and then he produced a contemporary print oh my showing goodness. showing people. So you uh, went pictures, or it didn't happen? And yeah, he yeah, said, pictures. Here and you he go. Said, yeah, here we are. <laughs> Here's an 18th century print. Because it does and, sound made up. And it does sound made up. But because I went through this journey, I suppose, with this, I thought it was absolutely brilliant conversation. And I couldn't yeah. help saying, that's so brilliant. I think he I think he did take it as sincere. But I just sort of added up over the weekend how many times I thanked people in a way that I hoped was sincere. Um but that I slightly worry that it isn't. But I, I don't know that there's anything I can do about it. The problem that you've got with that is that you can't control how anyone will receive something or how they're going to feel about it. True. True. And you shouldn't. So I no. think my thing, my take on that would be that, as I say, as long as you're not making someone visibly uncomfortable, yeah, that you should act 
act with integrity and according to what you really feel and be genuine. And if that is a real big explosion of thanks and, oh, my God, I just thought it was brilliant. You have told your truth. You've expressed what you want to express to that person. What they then do with it is so out of your hands that I don't like the thought of you changing your behaviour for fear of something that you can just never control anyway. That's a very good point. That is a very good point. And very consoling, that is. Yeah, I know. Well, I'm glad because, you know, you should... But it doesn't sound to me like you're doing anything very untoward. I think that... And this sounds rich from me because I worry about things unnecessarily professionally. Yes. Um, but it sounds like you're worrying unnecessarily. Yes. I mean, I suppose also that it feeds into the thing about um, when you meet new people and you quite want to make uh, a decent impression. Yeah. And um, how I would like to be is I'd like to be just always myself, like a mm. stick of is it like a stick of Blackpool rock? Totally so authentically that, you, so yeah. authentically me. Um, but I'm slightly uh, conscious sometimes that I that I do sort of because I want to make a good impression. I I I, I, I sometimes up feel that I need to up my game and is oh. that being a bit fake I understand that completely I think it's a, it's a difficult thing because that desire to want to make a good impression comes from such a good place yeah that it's hard to sit here and say don't worry about what anybody thinks because that's daft and also first impressions are important and it shows that you care about the situation and you care about the people and you want things to be good and yeah. to be nice which is right that's how you should be yeah. approaching things and thinking about it I just think and I haven't worked out how to do this so no. I'm the pot here with the kettle but you need to let yourself off the hook a little bit as well because you are you and you are brilliant and if they don't access into that then that's not really a love problem no maybe not maybe not and and I mean I, I did find over the weekend that the times when I felt I was just not conscious and just playing the game straight from the shoulder sure. seemed to be the times that, I mean, we, we, we had a session about the Wars of the Roses and um, the lady I was interviewing uh, is a Yorkist and um, she oh, was gosh. talking about the wonderful triumph that they'd had. Did it come to blows? Uh, yeah, but well, she was talking about the wonderful triumph of some some battle or another. Could have been master, master. I don't know where it was, Town or something. And I I went, yeah, but who won in the end? And she went, yeah, but you cheated. And I felt we were absolutely in the same place. The audience absolutely sure. loved this because because we were we were kind of she was riffing. You in were in it. Way. You were totally yeah. in it. Uh, yeah. Yes, and that was that was good because I felt yes that. That did work, um, but partly I knew it worked because there were like forty people whooping in the audience. Sure, and, and, it's, and it's, I don't always have people whooping. It's a shame you can't always have that feedback, right? But that yeah. I think is the 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 real prickly point about self confidence. And again, this is something I haven't worked out. Is there comes a time when validation does have to come from within? I, th- I think that's probably true all the time because yeah. external validation will only do so much. Yeah, and it can be a prop, but it won't cure the doubts that you have. No, because that can only come from the inside. So, 
whatever it is that makes you worry about how you are perceived yeah I think that's something that you have to become at peace with yourself yes for that I feeling think to go away and I, I'm saying I'm being Gandalf now sending you off on a quest that I don't know how to do myself because I well haven't managed it I suppose the thing I'm talking about in some senses is that the best part of it is analyzing how you come across and sometimes thinking um have I gotten to ways of doing stuff which is less effective than I thought it was. It's it's a means of communication, et cetera, et cetera. And that, I think, is good. Where it's bad is where you analyse how you interact with other people to the extent that you withdraw from them because yeah. you're letting – I know this is a terrible expression, but you can – in communication with other people, you can let the perfect be the enemy of the good – it's it's paralysis by analysis, right? Sometimes, Yeah. and you Yes. can definitely get in your own way. And you make an important point because I think, and I'm going to use a corporate term now: continuous improvement is important. None Yeah. of Yes. us ever get to the point where we can rest on our laurels and No. say, "Okay, I'm now perfect." If you are thinking that you're perfect, I can promise you that you're the problem. Yep. So. Yeah, it's it's how do you draw the line, I suppose. I think I think you're doing the right thing in looking at it and considering other ways of being. I think my concern would be that you're maybe looking to change something that's already good, because if you are able to enthusiastically and unabashedly go up to someone and say, I think that was just fantastic, you're already Yeah. more confident than a lot of people who just wouldn't have the nerve to do that. And I think that sometimes if people... seem like they're on a bit of a back foot when you've given them praise it might just be that they're not used to it Yeah. I think it that's could just true. be that they don't know how to receive that information and, Yes. and you might have you might have been the best part of their day even though they haven't reacted to that at the time I think there's something there's something about this, uh, and there's something about uh, this and and a, a praise culture. And um, yeah I think we don't particularly live in a praise culture. Um, and I know you don't want to be in a situation where you're just patting one another on the back all the time. But on the other hand, people do have small wins, and Right. you know people make efforts. Um, Right. And sometimes to, a small win that it, something that comes across as a small win might have meant that someone had to be incredibly brave Yeah. and confront something with them that actually is a big deal, even if the output doesn't seem like a big deal. Exactly. Or, or, as you say, because you don't know where something lands. So wonderful Wars of the Roses lady, right? She, whose name is Annie Barthwaite, and I cannot recommend That's her a books. great name. Her book, Sicily, which is about um, Sicily of York, who was the uh, mother of Edward IV and Richard III, Oh, and gosh, loads okay. of other people. So, um, And loads of other people. and loads. Of, well, yeah, <laughs> she had thirteen children. So, Less notable, but well done yeah. Um, for that. but but she was saying that she wanted to write this book when she was doing A level history when she was seventeen, and she didn't start it. She said to herself, "I'll when I can, I'm going to write this book," and she she published it in her fifties. Well, good for her. I'm glad she did And it. and but what was interesting. what you say about you don't know where it lands, um, there was a massive whoop from the audience at that. 
And someone came up to me afterwards and said, do you know, I've been thinking maybe I'm too old. She's in her 40s, too old to start writing. It's and so my, so my point was, my point was that Annie had said this great thing, which was like a true, genuine thing. But she didn't know that there was someone in the audience for whom that was going to be just the And right. that might have inspired people, or even if they don't write a book, just to live their lives, you know, slightly more fully. So I have mentioned this to you before on here, actually. It's about this kind of cultural view we have that once you're over 30, you might as well just die. Because yeah. nothing else fun is going to happen to you. Yeah. And we see that all through life with people starting things, getting qualifications. I mean, women who have babies in their mid-30s take mm. so much flack. Um, yeah. It's like, oh you're too old no they're not if the body can do it they can do it people do things when it's the right time for them leave everybody alone and let them enjoy it there's a there's a terrible expression i don't know if they still use it but they used to use it elderly prima gravida geriatric one, pregnancy is what we say yeah. now and my sister was called this one of my sisters was called this at 30 come on yeah have a and, word yeah exactly 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 um but I agree. I also think one of the things that I get quite cross about is um, when you say, um, let's say, a writing award, let's say, for example, something I know something about, um, is for new voices. Right. By this, I understand voices that have not yet been heard. They're not famous. Yeah, exactly. But, yeah, it doesn't have yeah, to be the but, 15. Yeah it, yeah, it doesn't have to mean that you're young. Because... Right. You could be, I don't know if, if Benedict Cumberbatch has a 12-year-old stunt called Stanislas, but let's say he does, and yeah, Stanislas right. Cumberbatch writes a book, age 12, yeah. right? Okay. Now, it might be massively interesting and brilliant, or it might be that it just gets published because his name's Stanislas Cumberbatch. Yeah. And it might be that there is a woman of 52 or 71 writing about her the stuff that she has mulled over and in fact that was something that Annie said that was brilliant she said had she written her Sicily book at 17 um she was she said so she, she we've got this woman who's dealing with warriors a lot of the time and she said having spent my whole life in corporate situations where I was the only woman uh and I know what you have to do how you have to feed them feed them the idea that it's their idea and flatter them and all the things and she said so I'm writing a book informed with all my life yeah, experience because you have the life experience to see it through so it's interesting we bring this up now and we're probably going to start to merge our points a little bit because yeah. one of the things I wanted to talk to you about was your creative process because yeah. I'm writing again now actively yeah and I have a definite process that I go through which is sometimes seems not quite within my control but that'll wait um Oh my goodness, I do believe I've completely forgotten my point. I haven't, I'm back. So I found with writing, and I started writing very young, but actually my ability to finish things and to really flesh out stories came with yeah. age as I yeah. experienced the world more, learned about people, because books really, it's it doesn't matter where you've set it. It doesn't matter what wacky fantasy land you've got going on. It's about people. Yeah and behavior and what people yeah. do and of course before a certain part in a certain time in life you, you just don't really know no and you don't understand the nuances and you don't understand all the different ways that there are to react to things and the feelings that people go through and yeah. the 
and, and the situations you can find yourself in. So I found that actually age has been a real booster to imagination in so many ways because I just yes. have so much more context. Yes. Yeah. And also, also, um, you can bring in nuanced and you also bring in your own experiences. Correct. Um, and I mean, I um, did uh, a week's work in a chicken shed um, <laughs> a year ago. Why? Um, well, because I was short of money and because I had hoped that I could do a, um, a shift from six till nine. And then go and do other things during the day. Right. So it would be a nice little topper opera. Um, it turned out that they didn't want me to start until half past eight. And that meant that I wasn't going to be finished till half past 11, which meant that I was effectively losing earning opportunities for things that paid better than chicken shed. However, right. however, um, having had that experience of being inside a chicken shed um, yeah. with the eggs on conveyor belts and so on. Um, it's absolutely fascinating and I will put it in the next novel. Sure. Uh, I mean, the thing that, apart from anything else, the thing that absolutely staggered me more than anything is how many different coloured eggs there are. Right? Because we're used to the sanitised like, supermarket view, right? right? Yeah, you know, so the... the purple ones, so the green ones never never make it into yeah. supermarket. But you could actually, and I was saying, I was saying to myself, which is bizarre because I would buy a box of purple eggs in a heartbeat. Yeah, or or um, rainbow eggs, pink, purple, white, blue. You know, all of those colours are available. Yeah. Um, but uh, and and loads of different. I would breeds. be all over that. But um, but it was fascinating anyway, and uh, also the um, the chickens listen to Heart FM all the time. Which no. I found quite strange, and it wasn't I like for that. people that were really cute. It was for the it's for the chickens uh, because they like it for the chickens uh, for yeah. the chickens. Um, That's brilliant. Um, but but it just occurred to me that uh, that it was a really dynamic situation that I've never seen um, described in a novel, and I'm sure that I can find a way of fitting it into the next one. So um, you, you were can. talking about your you actual, pro yeah, actual process, though, Lady. Your actual process. Yeah. I'm not you're right. So I, I don't know why I wanted to ask you about yours because I, I, I started lots of things and I finished very few. Now yeah. to relate that back to our point about age, as yeah. I get older, I find it easier to finish things. I think yeah. because. I can imagine endings, which at yeah. 17 or yeah, whatever, yeah, yeah, I really yeah, couldn't. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Whereas now I can imagine endings and I've experienced that. So I find that there, there will be a certain type of story or a certain type of idea that will allow me to write it fully. And there are some that just don't. So the most recent idea, and I, I'm not, a believer in the supernatural I do think no. that things sort of originate from us but the experience that I had was of being given this story yeah so I've been to a theatre production I won't give away which one it was because yeah. that kind of relates to what the book is and maybe once the book's out I can tell you 
Yeah. But I've been to theatre production with my partner, which inspired this story. And we were there, we stayed in a hotel overnight. And, and I just lucid dreamed this entire thing for about seven hours, didn't sleep, but watched the entire story against well, the back of my eyelids. You see, I believe that happens. I believe because it's happened to me quite often with songs. Right. I go to bed, let's say I had, I mean, I used to be working in a situation where I had to do two comic songs a week without fail, you know, right. to pay the bills. So um, I would be um, recording on a Friday. So Thursday, I would have been tweaking songs and sometimes there'd be a missing verse. Right. And I just would have tried and tried and I couldn't get it. Right. And I would go to bed with a pen and paper by the bed because very often I would wake up in the middle of the night with a whole dream, with a whole verse ready. And it's there. Yeah. It's there. I mean, I know that's because people say that you you sort of process things. Sure. But, but I also believe, I also believe, I mean, uh, people say, do you work on your characters first? And I definitely do. Yeah. To the extent that they are in some hinterland between imaginary friends and demonic possession. Right, right. I understand that completely. So um, I realised on one occasion that I was shopping for them. And then I stopped. Yeah. Because I thought... Because the next stage of that is a room with very comfy walls, right? And someone to yeah, check exactly. on you three times a day. Yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, but what it was, was that I was thinking about something to do with food that was coming up in the story. And I knew what the characters were doing. One of them was cutting silage and he would be hungry, so probably would need steak, um, et cetera, et cetera. But um, I do believe there's something not supernatural, but unexplained about Unexplained the is definitely right, do. because you, cause I've been in a situation... So the, the point, my point really about it was that before I started to write this, I, I'd started another book, which was a ghost story. Mm. Perfectly viable plot, lovely twist at the end, cheers. Mm. And I couldn't make it come out of the pen. Mm. I, I just, I was like, oh, it, the scenes were forced. I found it laborious. I know it was, I know it's a good story. So I, I was mm. determined to carry on. Mm. But I just couldn't make it go. And then I'd had this experience where I just watched this whole thing happen. Mm. And with this one, it's it's almost like I, I'm compelled. Yeah, yeah. I'm absolutely yeah. compelled. I can't not write it. I've had yes. to have a couple of gaps for um for uni stuff and, and what have you. But um it, it's an entirely different thing because this just flows out and it's it's completely natural. Each next plot point is there. The characters to me are very obvious, they're clear, they're alive, they're vivid. I don't have to really think about who they are a little bit, obviously. Yeah. But, you know, it's, it's so totally different. So that's why I wanted to ask you about what your creative process is. And you've mentioned there that you work on your characters first. I, well, I, I work on my characters because I want... I don't want to, and I did a bit over COVID and it hasn't been ideal. Um, I don't want to be in a situation where I stop and start. Yeah. I want to have that flowing out of the pen. And for that, 
we need to have need to start by knowing what everybody's voice is yeah and um you, you kind of um mill the characters around you you, you try and, and find out something about them and and I, I had some great fun with the character who has come back in the next book because I just can't live without him. He's he's, a, he's no no Dav, but also his sergeant who's called Toscano, right? Right, yeah. And, and Toscano is one of my favorite characters to write because he's obsessed with Disney, right? To start with, so everything he has is Disney branded. Amazing. Um, and he's actually a really good person. But also, um, I was trying to, I, I was looking at what Jane Austen does, where she writes people who are very boring, but are actually quite morally good. Yeah, but she's so, one for the moral subtext, isn't it? Do you think it makes a difference what you're trying to do with them? Well, I, I suppose it, it it allows me, for example, to um, to be very affectionate about Toscano. Uh. And... Um, uh, I, 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 he turns up in the in the in the latest book, um, actually dressed as an Italian in like striped trousers with Brilliant. a hat and a big like a, a blouse because he's been selling ice cream on his parents' ice cream store, and there's a sudden emergency, and um, there's a very cynical policewoman who's just going just don't bloody believe it just do not believe it you know this guy's in fancy dress yeah. But, but yet, wherever, whenever he's tested, whenever he has to show his metal, whenever he's and he comes through, right? Brave, or and um, it turns out that he does have a superpower because he has a great sense of smell, and he says that's what makes a difference in the ice cream business. Can huh. you turn one drop of vanilla in twenty thousand of cream? And if you can. Oh. But so that means you might smell blood when no one else can smell blood. Right. There's a name but so what I'm that, saying is Hyper... what I'm saying is what I'm saying is it took me a long time um, living with that character to decide how he would be and how he'd fit in with other people. Um, and now he's like a much loved pet being taken for a walk. Got it. Um, there's more stuff to learn about him because obviously he himself is developing as a character. Um, but I wanted to try and create, I always try and create characters who, who you want, I want people to react to in more than one way. Yes. So, so you say, oh, God, no, he's put on the Disney soundtrack and they're doing a car chase. Yeah. But um, it's, a, it's a soundtrack from Moana in the, in the current book. Nice. Uh, but, but at the same time, I want them to say, oh, yeah. Don't take the Mickey out of Toscano. He's great. Yeah. Right. So, so I want. So you my, want them to have a real relationship with him, basically. I want the, yeah. I want the. I want the readers to feel some sense of a, um, a, a, a three hundred and sixty degree character. Yeah. And that's when, when you're writing quickly, like you're writing now. That's usually because your characters are three sixty degree characters. You've got them. They are. So it's, it's interesting for me with this one because the characters came out of the situation that they were in and the thing that had to be has to be resolved. Yeah. So I won't give too much away, but essentially there are a series of challenges. Yeah. And there's an, a desired outcome 
that yeah. needs to happen for this to come off, right? So, yeah. therefore, the characters that dropped in are people who are going to be catalysts for yeah. either yeah. success or jeopardy. And, of course, there will yeah. be both. Yeah. So what was interesting about this is that I actually started the first page of this came out of something that I wrote to go into my partner's birthday card right. as a hint about what we were going to go and see. Right. And so he was cast in the main role in that right. little excerpt because it was just a little hint. And, and mm. now he is the main character. Right. Because that's just how it sprung up was kind yeah. of around him as the hero. Um, and I do bang on, but I, I tend to think he's perfect because he is. So he, you know, he is a hero as far as I'm concerned. And then everyone else came out of what needed to happen in that story and yeah. the personalities that would be most conducive to the questions of morality, people being brave. Yeah. Um, adversity, someone to throw the spanner in the works because, of course, there always is somebody. Yes. And I yes. found that where I was basing or, or where I was coming up with those characters as a response to a situation, they became very, very vivid very, very quickly. Yeah. I, I imagine there's an aspect of profiling to that because if I'm like, well, this person needs to appear sincere but later on they're going to do this bad thing then you've got mm. a framework to shape someone around and of course yes. they'll have their own reasons for that as well but I wonder I think you're talking about a creative process which is really yin and yang it's really symbiotic yeah um in terms of of things like tv dramas they always say that they want character driven stories right yeah but there are also story-driven characters, aren't there? Well, there are. There are, because I find with the character-driven stories, we also tend to come up with the same few things. Now, I've heard it said that there are only kind of seven storylines, and I think that yeah. that might be true. Yeah. Because there are only so many ways in which we as humans can perceive the world. And even though there are many, yes. many, many variables, there really are only so many endings. And also the point about that, I think, the seven stories thing, which reminds me, I've lent my book about the seven stories to someone and I need to get it back, um, is that th there are only seven stories that work. That right. You can imagine other stories, but they don't actually work. It's the same as a car with square we wheels. You can imagine a car with square wheels, but it doesn't actually It doesn't go work. anywhere, yeah. Uh, and um, one of my favourite books, that I've probably mentioned probably like every podcast, is... Uh, a book called The Uses of Enchantment by Bruno Bettelheim, which was a, I mean, I'm not a great one for Freudian analysis, but what Bettelheim did was he um, he used fairy tales as a therapeutic method of dealing with children who were dealing with trauma or great difficulty. Got it. And the, um, the updated versions, I'm guessing, not the... Uh... No, well, the, I would say the fairly traditional ones. Oh, okay. Right? Um, and the reason why he did this is because he he found that they worked. Uh, they worked as a, as a way of working through the story and then starting to talk about your own feelings. And and what he says, for example, is if you look at the if you look at the characters uh, in let us say um, uh, Snow White, um, you've got the character of a wicked stepmother to start with, and um, he, he's a Freudian, so he says girls growing up 
have a rivalry with their mother. And by turning it into a stepmother, it makes it more acceptable. Oh, okay. But it, but it allows you to talk about your rivalry and your the failure of feeling in your own family um, because you've come across it in the fairy tale. So, so you've Hans got that kind of generational trauma. Yeah, so Hansel and Gretel's parents abandon them in the wood, yeah, which is a great way of encouraging people to talk about their own feelings of abandonment and isolation. But he says, okay, see he that. says these, these, are, these classic stories are classic because they work. They fulfill the function and they encourage in us um, the things that we need to have encouraged to feel a good life. So, so things like integrity, bravery, etc., yeah. are encouraged and rewarded. And um, the idea that you can overcome difficulty is really a major, major part of the story. And so that's what I mean, I suppose, by whether or not a story works, is does it have does it have a function? Um is it relatable? Is it relatable? And do you look at it and think um that makes some sense? And by that I don't mean I'm not excluding fantasy, you know, I love fantasy, but um it makes sense in the, in that it rings true. Yeah. Yeah. Um so have you got any characters that you um that you enjoy writing most? Yeah, I do. Um so it's, it's the best friend of our protagonist in this one is a, a man named Arun. He's a pacifist. Um right. and and a, and a really good man and has an interesting moral backstory and and is a man of deep deep faith and he's going to have a real glow up moment later in the book so he's my current favorite he's also a really great catalyst for humor which always comes through in my writing it's something that i can't not do particularly I, I, with dialogue between characters yeah well it, yeah that's interesting um i think one of the things that i really like in a book is lively bantering dialogue and, and that this is already absolutely packed with that. I think because it, it's it's largely based around my relationship with my partner, and that's how we are with each other. Yeah, yeah. I'm in it too a little bit. Um, yeah. and I think, I mean, I, I enjoy writing his character because it's it's so totally believable to me that he would be the hero. And I'm sounding like a total fangirl now, and that's because well, I. Am. Why not? That's yeah. Why not? Um, but I also I do I do enjoy a good baddie. Yeah. Oh, my a one, good... Yeah, a really good buddy. My one hasn't really been introduced yet. We've seen her, but what I've got in this is a truly dangerous female antagonist who well, is, good. you know, um, a, a real piece of work, and not in any way to be underestimated. So I'm really looking forward to bringing her out. I have a real problem a lot of the time with female characters and what happens with them, and the portrayal of women in a lot of media. I think because women are generally less physically intimidating not yeah. strong mm. it's quite easy to trivialize female characters because if you see like for example if you get a little tiny female actress beating mm. the living daylights out of a room of 50 guys there's a part of you that yeah. goes yes come on yeah. Yeah. because you can't you know you just kind of can't see it happening so i've um managed to come up with somebody who can be really really deadly in her own way so she's she's harnessed poisoning as a yeah a method and she's yeah. got really really very clever with it and she's incredibly sadistic 
uh, a very, very evil person. Uh, but she, and she's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. It's it's interesting because one of the things that I realise, uh, a thing that I have as um, a trope in my stories, um, because I don't particularly like murder mysteries, which um, written by men and where the victims are always young, attractive women. And we learn nothing about them but the cup size of their bra. Yeah. Because that's all he's interested in, really. Yeah, and she, yeah. she was always terribly gorgeous and athletic and yeah. everyone loved and, her. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and everyone loved her, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and um, because I'm writing what I believe are sort of entertainments and I want people to – and I think life can be a bit crappy for loads of people, and so I want them to pick up a book and be entertained by it. Sure. I don't want them to be harrowed. Um, my mother used to say only very young people like very sad plays. And I sort of slightly feel that that scarred me a bit, although there's a room for I reading. think that might be a bit true, you know, because, uh, yeah. Yeah, but but um, so what I always do, and I, I, I am the traditional style of murder mystery type thing where there's a murder and it gets solved. Um, I love red herrings. And in order for a person to be, because I don't do psycho killer stranger stuff. Sure. I do people who have been killed by someone they knew. Real, so, real people murders, not the ones. Yeah, so one. so yeah. you then have to start by the first vic- the first villain that you create is the victim. Because if there were not eight or nine people who wanted this person dead, you don't have your red herrings. So yes. So the line in my books between villain and victim is usually very a very, very and i like that i like that because that that is such a real life thing you know we say it all the time that they're by the grace of god you know yeah. um so i i think that that makes it probably very relatable when i read your book bloody Seventh, which is absolutely brilliant and everybody should read it i was struck by the humanness of everything and I was struck by how Welsh I felt afterwards because by the time I got to the last page I, I lived there yeah well I mean one and of I was things... in this community with these people I was absolutely astounded by how much sex everyone was having but <laughs> it, you know good for them but yeah I really I really felt part of it and I think that that's a different kind of writing to like you say that the the real psycho killer thing which and, and I do enjoy a bit of that. I mean, I'm a huge fan of the Hannibal books, the TV show, love it. But that takes it away. Yeah, I mean, from I quite, a human experience, really. I quite like watching the the kind of the sort of almost the true crime type of things because I'm kind of slightly staggered by it. Totally, but it's not the kind of thing that I can realistically because I want the area where I live to be part of a main character in the book. And so I'm delighted that you finished it and you felt that you were there. I really um, did. I really did. And um, so because of that, I can't realistically have a serial killer on the loose in the same village all the time. No, because um, you'd run out uh, of people. Yeah, and then you end up like midsummer, you know, and that's... Right, I mean, the house prizes in midsummer must be just fantastic. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because you get a four-bedroom for about 75 quid by now because everyone yeah, keeps dying. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. But but also, um I I suppose partly um because I I wanted to make sure there's a variety of, of of stories about and um because some of the 
I mean, I, I read a lot of old books as well as things that are newly, newly published, but sometimes you come across an old book, a book that was written 40 years ago, 50 years ago, and the attitudes to certain things are so horrible in it. Yeah. You know, particularly yeah, yeah. I mean, if you read the, the Flashman books, when some of them... Oh, I love Flashman. I love Flashman, yeah. No, I do, but when you read some of the language, it's like, oh, God. Yeah. But but the thing about Flashman is it kind of carries itself through because it's it's supposed to be horrible in a way. Yeah. The, the thing that I I mean recently came up obviously I have much more of a problem with someone like Martin Amis, right? Who I just okay. think it's brutally misogynistic. Oh yeah. And um and I so I don't find that comfortable to read. And so I suppose I'm saying I slightly want to write old-fashioned books that have a slightly modern sensibility so it's so it's the detective solving the crime almost in a poirot style oh yeah oh, poirot is just great though and, yeah. and that i think it did capture that although your character dav davis was very real and very well-rounded and we had a very accurate view of what his flaws are and yeah. that you know he, his bad sides weren't hidden from us but he was still ultimately forgivable for them yeah well he's i mean he's decided don't let don't let me start getting you started on this because i've talked about this all night but but he is designed to be the antithesis of the the tortured policeman uh who lives alone in a caravan and has a secret past because dav has a past but it's kind of all around him Right, it's a... everywhere because she's not been secret about it. And that was what I wanted to mention earlier was when we said we have character-driven dramas is that a lot of those characters right. then end up being the same. I mean, how exactly. many tortured detectives can we really have? At some point, surely, we've just got to have a detective who wants to get through his shift and get on with his life. Yeah, and 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 um, also, I came, across, I came across one the other day um, and it had the 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 I think very tired trope of detective spending too much time at his work and wife bitching about it all the time. Right. And I and I'm thinking to myself, I don't I don't buy that. I don't buy that no. at all. Or it certainly doesn't feel any. There the um, I was greatly inspired by Hinterland because what made me laugh about that was. This is a, a guy who speaks Welsh and moves to Mid Wales, right? And he lives in a caravan in a rural area. He doesn't buy a single raffle ticket. Three series and he hasn't bought one raffle ticket. Totally impossible. Totally unrealistic. And actually what would happen is he would be living in his caravan being tortured and someone would knock on the door and go, Mr Matthias, is it? Um, just to let you know, you're coaching the under-12 football, yeah? It's either that or you're teaching the recitation party. And he'd yeah. go, no, no, I want to stay here and be tortured. And they would no time for that, hun. There's football they, that needs they, coaching. They bring the recitation party outside. They would be. He'd open the curtains one morning, and the recitation party would be standing eagerly there, ready to learn. So, so I wanted to write a detective who's the absolute opposite of Matthias and his caravan, um, and has actually to do stuff like be a, a governor at the school and remember to get broccoli and the things that people do in real life as well as solving the murder um and uh, i'm not saying that uh, uh you know it's just what feels comfortable for me as a way of doing things no and but i also, like it and I, I like that because i think it 
it, it does make a more relatable human element and I think that it encourages people just to live their authentic life and they can still be the main character whilst they're doing very ordinary things um so so since I've been with my partner I've been he's very much into anime so now I am as well uh, yeah. not not that I made that sound incredibly strange and like I don't have my own identity no, that's no. not the point it's just I I also like it but have been introduced to it by him um and I have a real problem with the female characters that I've encountered so far yeah. largely because I mean just insipid isn't even the word um there was one series we watched Berserk where this female commander incredibly capable woman fearsome warrior spaffs an entire battle because she wait for it gets her period i was ready to headbutt a wall yeah i can't, can't remember isabella her most catholic majesty saying i think we'll just let the moors run over spain again because it's that time of the month well i mean i mean I, I, you and i both had a period i think i'd be more effective in battle frankly I'll be down to my last nerve, sick of everyone's nonsense and ready to go home. So let's clear this lot up sharpish. Yes. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yes. Actually, that's it. That's that's interesting. Actually, that's a very interesting thing, because what you're talking about there is the perception of a female weakness, yeah. which actually could, in fact, be a female strength. Uh-huh. If if it's characterized as something so if you have a time when you are very much no nonsense taking, you know, just like no, none of just that. Just not allowing this through. It's just not going to happen. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That can actually be a, a good thing in your yes, character. Absolutely, it, it's not a weakness. You know, absolutely. I mean, if you were to spend a week a month lying on a chaise long like the Ladamo Camellias, well, who's got the time? I know. I mean, although, my mother, although my mother used to say that, she used to say sometimes, she used to say, you talk about the improvement in women's rights, and yes, that's great. She said, my mother just lay down on the sofa for a week a month when oh, she yeah. didn't feel like doing anything. But, you know, that well obviously... Played. Yeah, that... And actually, there was something I came across, um, and I, I, it, it's... Uh, it was a very. It was interesting. It was a discussion about uh, talking to some people about, um, you know, their family traditions, um, very much agricultural sort of traditions, and things like the woman shouldn't do the churning of the butter when she's on a period. Right. Now, the first. Do they give a reason you, why? Um, the butter won't won't turn, won't turn into won't turn to butter. But I'm now thinking, yeah, I'd say that too. If I if I was a farmer's wife, yeah, uh, that and, babe can't do that this week. That's never going to turn to butter. I'm I'm cursed. Yeah, I'll be uh, yeah. I'll be out, out elsewhere. Yeah, what <laughs> I'll be doing is I'll be sitting on a wall thinking. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you you know you you get on with the you get on with the churning. Um, yeah, and I, I know enough about my own PMT to know that actually everyone would be too scared to argue with me on that point. <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> one could be a touch volatile. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, I think I, I, my, I think mine's really just more like being exhausted. But, but and this is another thing that I, um, one of my little things at the moment, that given that I am touch wood, an extremely healthy postmenopausal woman. Excellent, well done. Um, and I say this because I had a checkup, and the doctor said, Do you, "Is this really you?" 
uncomplicated pregnancy in the year 2000. I really haven't seen you since. And I said, yeah, no, I know. Happy days. And she said, no, really happy days. Yeah. She, She was taking a bit of a tone with me almost. She was saying, no, really happy days. We've got five and a half thousand people on the books. And I could count on the fingers of one hand the number of people who've got one screen of information. Yeah. And uh, she said, take care of yourself and be aware of, which is a good point. But actually, um, I I think that uh, one of the things that we don't talk about as women is that obviously we, we go through different phases of our life. And now people are being more open about the menopause, which is great. Really good. But yeah. nobody is talking about the time when you can be healthy, full of the same sort of um, activities, uh, whatever you like for, you can still do, but without your periods. And it's it's like a kind of golden period that nobody ever talks about because we're supposed to be in this stage, we're supposed to be some collapsing hag. Well, this is what I was saying earlier, isn't it? And I and I really don't get it because, you know, there are people in their 50s and 60s climbing Everest for crying out loud. Yeah. So this idea that, you know, once your period stops and what, you just fold yourself up like a deck chair and wait for death. Is that the idea? I, I think that's it. Unless you crumble beforehand. Yeah, maybe you're supposed to crumble. I don't know. Crumble. Yeah. But, you know, it's because, it's you know, getting your period is a benchmark. Having your period is just appalling. So the fact that more of us don't look forward to the time when that goes away. So as you say, you can just kind of live your life unfettered by such nonsense. Yeah. Because it is nonsense. I mean, I'm an unhealthy premenopausal woman. My yeah. um, gynecological situation isn't good. It's better now. Mm. I had an operation recently and actually I yeah. now have an air quotes normal uterus. But I have all sorts of other complications. You know, I don't react well to the coil. So then I have to mm. take supplemental estrogen. Just these things just aren't easy for me. No. And that's sort of how it is. So I'm a bit envious of you. Well, it, I mean, I'm, I'm I'm sort of slightly humble about it in the sense that I, um, that I was, I suppose I thought that I was just in a way um, no better or worse off than anybody else. And the doctor told me, 100%, you are better off than lots of people. And yeah. be thankful. Um, and, uh, but, and I know that people, obviously, as they get older, they do face ill health challenges, but not necessarily for women in their 50s and 60s. No way. I'm not seeing that as, I'm, you know, I'm certainly not in, in, in my kind of dotage. Um, no. And, you know, we, we're living longer as well. Uh, so I'm slightly um, freaked out by the number of people who are younger than me I know who retired. And I'm thinking, right. you can't retire. You can't retire. See, I think you can't retire. I watch people retire and then I watch them get ill. Well, there, there is a reason for that. Um, it, we, we spend a lot of time talking about systems in the brain. But, but um, most people who've had uh, any type, this, this particularly happens with men, but it can happen with women as well. If you've had a job where you've had a level of stress involved in it. Mm. Whatever that stress is, it doesn't matter what it is. But if you have had a level of stress, you do get um, adrenaline. And uh, the adrenaline that you habitually have in your job becomes a part of your whole adrenal system. It's just how you expect to be. And so you go into adrenal cold turkey when you retire. 
And I was heard a, a, a had a conversation with someone who was talking about a um uh who was talking to an occupational therapist who said the best advice they could give, particularly for men, is to set yourself some mad challenges in the first year of retirement. Right. Things Do you think that's the same them. kind of thing that sort of draws people towards quite extreme situations? You know, if you've been, oh, I don't know, people that have been in, all right, Nims, the guy yeah. who did 14 Peaks, was special forces, came out of that and went and climbed all the biggest mountains in the world in the shortest amount of time and continues yeah. to do that. So yeah. is there something about that situation where you've been in, in an extreme environment? Yeah that will come with kind of a heightened level of stress excitement whatever it is mm. that then stepping out of that just to live uh, air quotes ordinary life with which yeah. there's nothing wrong then almost becomes a bit impossible because the benchmark has been set for what every day looks like well my mother used to say always lots of quotes from my mother but she is quite a bit, i hope this isn't turning into too many stories about my fa family but these are it's a good quote she used to say so and so isn't really a peacetime person now your right. uncle bill you nobody could call him a peacetime person by which she meant they're sort of people who do incredibly well in wartime uncle bill was, was a bit of a psycho was he no i just think she <laughs> thought that he'd done done well, there used to be a thing. People used to say, oh, they had a good war. Right. Um, and which meant really uh, that they'd been really challenged and they came up with the goods. Right. And so then you put yourself in a situation after that where unless you have got 40 peaks to climb, you are you learned something about yourself by the challenge that came from the mm, yeah. the. the, the the military or whatever it could have been you survived and you learned something about yourself and it seems like a strange thing to put that back in the box forevermore and never use it again yeah i understand that so i think there's i think there is an element of that and i'm sure that the way you yourself deal with a challenge or a thrill or fear which are all sort of close to each other um then um you know, there's something to be there's something to be to, to be said about that. Yeah, you keep Definitely. you try to keep yourself at that level. That makes sense. To mm. so take it off in another direction. So my yeah, thing, that, my other thing, I wanted to ask you about your creative process, but I also saw there was an article this week. Or was it this week? A couple of weeks, a little while ago, actually, not not quite this week, in the Daily Mail of all places, so yeah. Daily Mail online, with a theoretical physicist called Sasha Hinckley right. who has said that we're probably 10 to 15 years away from making contact with alien life right now I know there'll be a lot of people jumping up and down saying we found it already it's in the archives mm. but anyway you know in, in a publicized yeah. way make contact with alien life and I got to wondering if we should be looking for life outside our planet when we've got so much work to do for the people that live here or if you think that those actually can be separate issues well i suppose my biggest problem or the biggest question about this i am fascinated by the whole idea yeah Me too. yeah um partly because of the way it would open up your perception yeah because for yeah. example we know that we can see certain colors 
but those are the colours that exist on this planet. Who's to say our eyes could not also pick up yes. the colours from another planet, but we just have not got the colours on it. Because we haven't been exposed to them, so we just exactly. don't know. Yeah. But but I slightly, I can't help thinking, I, I first thought this quite a long time ago, and it kind of stuck with me. I just imagine that you are at the court of Atahualpa, and it is um, 1480, and you say, it would be great to meet people from other civilizations. Have your head cut off immediately. Let's send a boat out, yeah, and see if we can find some, I don't know, maybe some Spanish. <laughs> and so it just imagine if instead of just being tripped over by the Spanish, which is what happened to them, imagine if they'd actually set up a, um, an outreach system to find the Spanish. Right. Yeah? Who then completely destroyed their civilization. Because do, but had... do you think it would have gone the same way if they'd found the Spanish as opposed to being found by the Spanish? Would that have changed the relationship and would they have been viewed with more respect? I think if they had... Um, if they had turned up um, in, you know, Valladolid um, with any gold about them at all, I think would have had exactly the same outcome. Right. OK, fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, I think it might have maybe been different because they may have been seen as a. But then maybe maybe I'm giving people too much faith. But, and if there but, was resource to be taken, maybe the Spanish would have. Done yeah. It. And so I suppose. I'd like to think that we would um, that we'd be visited by some sort of extraterrestrial primary school teachers who'd say, "Now, let us tell you all about how our civilization works." Here's how telepathy works, as opposed to being like, "That's nice. I'm having that." Yeah, exactly. But I rather think that, and I think it's partly. Um, I mean, I'm I'm morbidly interested in those sort of. Um, those books uh, that look at great themes in civilization, whether it's climate or whether it's, um, you know, for example, why did Western Europe become so important when it's such a small area, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And um, one of the uh, things I heard recently that really, really um, freaked me out in a way, because it's just like a new way of thinking about history, was about how the plague had impacted everything. Yes. Um, and because there were not enough human beings to work anything anymore, the speed of innovation just went hugely was up. It's such a fascinating time in mean, the emergence of the middle class because yeah. the wealth trickled down so much faster because, of course, you know, previous to that, you'd have to wait for one relative to die to get one generation's worth of belongings mm. whereas people were inheriting kind of everything overnight because it was wiping yeah. everyone out and so you had these upwardly mobile people who could also set their own wages for the first time because if Mr Lord wanted his field tilled or whatever and there was this massive shortage of serfs it could be like well that'll be two pence instead of one what are you going to do about it yes yeah ex exactly and suddenly you have this massive social mobility but also, and this had never occurred to me before, but it's exa exactly the same thing. Most wealthy nations in Europe were relying on galleys yes. um, to move around. And they did not have the manpower for galleys anymore, so they had no. to develop um, things like caravels. And once they've developed sailing ships that can tap, they can go all the way around the world. And 
had they had galleys, they would have still been scooting around the coast. Yeah, they would have been behind. So it's it's interesting, so, so, isn't it? Because so, we lost so, the... so one of the points, one of the points that this theory created was that people became a bit more rootless and a bit more freebooting and a bit less I'm stuck on my farm and now more yeah. um, more um, challenging the world. But but he was saying, of course, it is only a certain type of person that that goes goes freebooting. And I slightly think that the space aliens who might be coming to our galaxy, if they've turned up, are probably freebooting. Are probably freebooters. They probably left the primary school teachers at home. Um, you know, yeah, because they're busy with the next generation of. Um... Gigamorph or whatever it is. Yeah, but, yeah. Yeah. So I think I think my so I've got a conflicted view on this, which won't surprise anyone because I'm a massive contrarian. Number yeah. one is that I'm really glad that theoretical physicists who can think like this and practical th physicists exist because I'm so glad that there are really clever people because honestly, yeah. I feel like if it were just down to me, I'm not sure we'd have got as far as fire. <laughs> I don't think I would have rub the sticks i don't think I, I think it would have been all over by now no human race finished <laughs> so i'm really glad that some people are so 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 smart i mean i read carlo Rivelli's book seven quick seven brief lessons on physics right a few years ago and right. i understood the the entire universe for a week right it was amazing my information retention is really poor so I, it's like i haven't read it now it's gone but i got how all of it works and I really recommend that you read it it's so good so I'm really glad that exists and I'm glad that we are clever enough to be kind of looking out there because it's yeah. I find it impossible that with the vastness of space that there isn't another planet that can sustain some yeah. kind of life I don't think it would necessarily look like our form of life no. but I think it's there probably mm. because it's going to be right but I also have a problem with spending massive amounts of money on that when we we have such problems at home i agree with you i think it seems a bit of a i mean if i want to be perfectly brutal um i sometimes think uh, you know in the bit in shrek when they're walking back towards the city yeah. and they can see lord farquad's tower yeah. And Shrek says, do you think he's compensating for something? Yeah. I often think that when I look at the rocket launches. Are we I compensating for something? I yeah. can't I can't help thinking this is a very male-oriented industry and look what they're doing. They're blowing large things up into yeah, space. Yeah, like maybe you should just set a firework off in the garden or something and feel happy yeah. with yourself. But kind of like but, the reverse of what you said about you know, any alien that was coming to us might be freebooting. I mean, if we look at the human history of exploration and what we do to our own people, I think yeah. the thought that we are going to have anything positive to contribute to a new race is highly arrogant and dishonest, potentially, because, like you say, if they just happen to have lots of natural resources, I reckon we'd wipe them out sharpish. Well, yeah, th 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 there is there is that. And I but then this is this is a slightly interesting and a, and a post-Christian view. So. Um, uh, Obviously, I'm not sitting in this podcast um, being an apologist for the conquistadors, but they sure. thought that they had something which was their faith that they wanted everyone to hear. Yeah. And what do we do? We kind of do these things where we 
we bury a time capsule and we put a Rick Astley song and a and 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 a and a, a potato waffle <laughs> in a box. Then we're gonna give and, you a... <laughs> Yeah. That's why they, that's why we haven't made contact with aliens. They received that box. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So so what I'm saying is and um it is interesting. I mean, one of my favourite historical what ifs is um, what if um, Elizabeth and Philip had got married, and right. the whole and the whole of the Americas, North and South, had been under the Spanish system, and although it wasn't great in many many ways, thanks to a brilliant guy called Bartolomé de las Casas. Um, it was regarded that every Native American was a human being. And right. that was considered to be quite radical. Very radical. Saxon Protestants soon changed that. Yeah. But um, but um, so I suppose I'm saying to myself, um, when we were in that exploring mode, we thought that we had something definite to give apart from a potato waffle and a Rick Astley. Yeah, song. it was just the, so, kind of the overreaction when people maybe didn't want to comply with that. You know, I, oh, I don't yeah, think no, that no, there's anything I'm not, wrong. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, as I say, I'm not being a, um, I'm not being an apologist for that. But what no. I'm saying is in terms of the motivation that gets you up and out of your door and yeah it's just i guess the motivation to get up and out of the door is then mixed with the entitlement to just cut people's hands off it's maybe when that becomes the issue (laughs) but 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 that's my my point is that um that i'm i mean i'm massively like you in awe of these incredibly clever people who think very clever things and um you know if they think that there are aliens, then I am inclined to believe that there are. Yeah, but, I think, yeah, yeah. But, but I'm not sure that the, as a culture, and I'm talking about Western culture, don't know enough about Chinese or Indian or Sub-Saharan African culture at the moment to, to say, I'm not sure that we've got the mad drive to see the furthest reaches of, you know, whatever, We've got the kind of oh, wouldn't it be nice to know what's out there? But yeah. that's that's almost the two e holiday guide to outer space. I think it's the um that that might change though with tech because at the moment it would be so many thousands of people's lifespans to get there. Yeah, I mean they'd have to be born and immediately be trained on how to direct this rocket ship so that they yeah. could then die doing that job and educate the next load of people, and they would yeah. still have no hope of seeing where mm. they were going. Yeah. So that's a long dark night. It is. With some pretty things along the way potentially. And and no I think I think the thing that captures our imagination particularly around films about space. I watched Interstellar recently. Yeah. And it's brilliant. But I think one of the reasons it's so compelling is not the journey out it's the inability to come back. Yes. Because yes. we do have a strong homing instinct, right? So it's yes. like, if you shoot me up there, I want you to get me back down again. Yeah. And I think there's a point where once you go beyond a certain point and you're just relying on a craft, yeah, you can't necessarily come home. And it's not like there's anywhere else to stop off along the way. It's like, you know, it's like, it's not even go, well, that's fine. I guess we could just pitch up on the Balearic Islands for a bit and maybe wait for the whole thing to blow over. It's like yeah. you're out there with no oxygen, no heat, no nothing. It's not our world. We don't belong. No. Yeah. So, and I no, think that's I th- what makes it in a way compelling, yeah. It, it is, it is. 
And yet there's been, in the history of exploration, there have always been those moments, haven't there, when, you know, the Chinese are going down the coast of Africa and they exactly say, yeah, maybe, but getting home from here is going to be... Yeah, and I think it's the same thing that people went through with just exploring the world in general. I mean, before we had the maps filled in, you sailed across that horizon and no one knew what would happen. Yeah. No Um, one knew what would happen. You didn't know what was there. I mean, at times they still thought it was blooming flat. What if you fell off? Well, it's it's interesting. It's interesting. And what do maps represent? Because this is this amazing chap was talking about fox tossing uh, also has written some brilliant books. Uh, about the history of maps. I hate fox so tossing. I wish that wasn't real. I know, I know, I know. But I wish um, it wasn't real. Um, but he was talking about maps and the way um, his first book, which I've got here, is called Phantom Atlas, second book rather. And it and it's about the way in which people wrote as maps things which were only dreams or rumours or legends, mm-hmm. and put them on maps. And um, he was talking about uh, an attempt to find an island that had been described um, in a 16th century atlas. Mm-hmm. And the Mexicans were really keen on finding it because obviously they'd get a whole load of continental shelf. Yes. It was found. And they sent an expedition out in, I think, 2012 to see if this island existed. Oh, my God. And, and it, it, was made up in, it was made up in the first case. Oh, my God. And I just love that idea about... about what do we so so what do we have to tell us about the world that we can't see we right. have or maps yeah which we are trusting to that trusting that they're accurate yeah um and maybe they're not well no so i, I listened because i'm quite a morbid person to a podcast called black box down which is right. about plane crashing yeah. And they do it in quite a positive way in that they talk about how the industry then improves and safety is improved after a crash. So yeah. it's not just ambulance chasing. There yeah, is, yeah. you know, kind of an analytical value there. And there was one that they did about the disappearance of MH370, which is the yeah. Malaysian flight that went missing yeah. and still bits of it have been found, but the rest of it hasn't really. And there was all the controversy about the pilot and how that happened and all these mysterious circumstances. And that's all terrifying enough anyway, because of the concept that a professional can just steal a plane and kill 200 people mm-hmm. for reasons that no one will then understand but what terrified me also was then finding out the size of the underwater mountains yes. in the South Indian Ocean yeah was so like Mount Everest isn't the biggest guys they go down too yes and I found that just so staggering like I could just imagine and in these situations I always imagine that I'm there with the dog I don't know why <laughs> But just imagining being out in the middle of that ocean just by myself with the dog and then what you do and the scale of it and and the sheer scope of what's around you and what you can't even see and the depths of where it goes Mm. is that we've got all this information, but we really still don't know that much about a lot of the world because we just physically haven't been there. But also just the realisation that actually you can fly a plane for seven hours and no one really knows where it is. If it's in that part of the world, everything is so remote. Yeah. So apart from some pings, no one knows where you are. And so yes. people fly that route every day and it's just such a leap of faith to be yes. like, I'm just going to trust that we'll get there because if you crash out there, no one can hear you scream. No. Oh, absolutely. And no one's coming. Well, we, 
but see that's very interesting because how much of our lives do we spend alone and by alone i mean somewhere where you can't hear any impact of human beings no here in kent you're not alone and it doesn't really get dark either because there's light pollution from the town but here i mean i'm on the farm in the sticks but there's within eyesight of here i'm looking four other residential properties mm. and you know the two main houses so that you know if i were in trouble as much as i'm out in the sticks i, I could get yeah. help very very yeah. easily and that's and and it, it's interesting because we went years ago we went to um when i was still with alex we went to italy and we we got a villa for what looked like a very cheap price. Right. And, you know, you do kind of always think, what's this going to be like? And the reason why is because it was so isolated. Right. And I found it fine because I'd grown up in a very isolated place myself. Yeah. Um, but Alex was completely freaked out by it. Right. Um, and he was saying, well, what, you know, what is this place almost yeah um and uh once you start thinking about places where you could crash in a plane and what it would be like to be there um you realize that although we think that we're complete masters of the planet we that the whole we have is quite fragile very and patchy very yeah um but that that we think that we have because we have this sort of Almost, it's almost like a spider web of technology in some senses. Oh, and humans um, have a bizarre confidence, don't we, really? Yeah. For for an organism, if you think about our natural weapons, nope, not really there. Yeah. Our innate abilities, you know, like my dog can jump over something three times as tall as him. Oh, sorry, you were so sick. You wish you were at this bloody literary festival because I've been telling you about it so much. But I listened to a brilliant woman talking on Friday night, Rebecca Ragsykes. She's written a book about Neanderthals. Amazing. And her, the, she's working on another book called Matriarcha about all the times in human history when women were in charge, which I think should be quite interesting. Yeah, that would anyway, be good. While she was talking about Neanderthals, um, this sounds so mundane, but actually was totally fascinating, was um, it's become obvious from archaeology and obviously as science moves on, archaeology becomes cleverer. Um that Neanderthals were able to use, they were able to um, treat birch bark in a way to turn it into glue. Right. And it needs to be heated um, in a vacuum in order for that to happen. Otherwise, if it's heated and there's oxygen, it just catches light. Right. So what they were saying is whether or not you can hide, or she was saying is whether or not you can hypothesize for the for the existence of language because this technology is not one that you would stumble across every day you know you were saying about you wouldn't be necessarily rubbing those sticks to make fire no. you're a you're a neanderthal and you you realize that if you heat a birch piece of birch uh, bark in an area from which you've removed the oxygen you can get this really useful glue but how well, I think very often it'll happen by accident at first. Yeah. But then the most important thing is if it happens by accident at first and it's really useful, then you have to... Then have there's to... an effort to recreate it. Yeah. So, But that means 
you have to be able to communicate what how that happened yes so that there's no air to... in here terry that's why it's working exactly. which you wouldn't be able to do if you didn't have language yes exactly because so that is can... our that's our advantage isn't it in the natural world is is nastiness yeah. thumbs and language yes that's why the yes. human has succeeded yeah absolutely absolutely um and, and and so it's fascinating just because there's something so mundane you could hypothesize to something so fantastic exactly neanderthals if they're able to create birch bark glue that means they must have language because there's been a view that they were kind of a less advanced version to the Cro-Magnon, but we think that that's not true now, right? Well, I think I think uh, as there are so many different uh, varieties of human being discovered, it all it seems um, that that's um, certainly the case, and and yeah. that we know, for example, that people with very serious injuries were living to an old age. So, right. So there was a medical system. So there was of a system, sorts. yeah. There was a system whereby somebody who could no longer have taken part in the hunt because their leg had been so badly smashed was still alive twenty five years later. So we had some social care going on. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, the other thing I thought this was a great question was if you were on a bus with a Neanderthal, would you know? And she Not said, necessarily, no. you wouldn't. You well, it, she said it, and the answer to her. This was she, it's depend on where you were sitting with regard to the Neanderthal, because the brow is different, and the way of walking is different. But right. if he's sitting on a bus and you're behind him or her, you wouldn't see the difference because they had the brow ridge. They had the brow ridge. So yeah. my uncle has that in quite a pronounced way. Great uncle, sorry. Does he? Yeah, yeah, he does. Well, there you are. So I wonder if there's some mix there, because we know that they did intermix. Well, um, she was saying that it was thought that there were some um, people in Cardiganshire who actually were, in fact, um, Neanderthals. And I've seen some photographs of them. I've also been to barn dances. And, I, I, you know, I think the jury's out. Can confirm that to be true. <laughs> I think the jury's out. OK. <laughs> yeah. I don't think we'll find out on 23andMe. Yeah, no, but yeah, but um, uh, in terms of um, in terms of um, uh, Neanderthal survival, we probably need to scan everybody's B-reels for the last, like, yeah. you know, whatever. Yeah. And maybe we'll find some. I but, think it's fascinating. Uh, yeah, it is. And so, are there any other brow ridges in the family that you know of? Is it a hereditary thing? Not that I know of. His is the only one that I can think of off the top of my head. Um, but then but then it's quite a scattered family, you see, we're not really a tight unit. So it, it could be that there are back in time. Because there's um there's a thing, isn't there, called Maybe the I should look. There's also a thing called the Basque bun, isn't there? Which is like um a sort of slight bump in the base of the skull at the back of the neck, um, which is very common much more common among people of basque um origin than anybody else so oh, uh, interesting. i was uh, well yeah again but me wondering about my social interactions i was talking to a woman who was uh explaining that she thought that she had basque ancestry um 
and I immediately kind of made a grab for the back of her neck. And I don't, <laughs> I don't think that's possibly the right. Then thing. I got tasered. It was really <laughs> awkward. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Oh my god! Perfect. Right. Well, that's an hour and a half for us. Well, um, fantastic discussion as ever. As ever. And um, I, I, I'm just going to leave you with one thing. You know, you know my Tudor fact, my ridiculous Tudor fact. Go on. Um, so, I was today years old when I realised, which I kind of have known, but again, haven't put the pieces together. Dudley, as in Leicester, as in Queen Elizabeth's favourite. Yes. Yeah, was Lady Jane Grey's brother-in-law. Oh, did I that missed you? Yeah, it had, well, it sort of had, it, I kind of knew it, but then I couldn't still somehow see how they hadn't all been executed. I couldn't oh, see it's just such a tangled it's... web, isn't it? I guess, yeah. I guess that there was just such a thing as having to stop somewhere or else there would have yeah, been no absolutely. one left in the nobility yes, at all. Yes. <laughs> but it just made me think about him in a new way. I was thinking, yeah, so that's your dad executed, that's your brother executed, sister-in-law executed. You Everyone would try executed. very hard to be nice to the Queen, wouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, listen, we'll mill some more air next week. We'll build some more air next week. Uh, if you want to get in touch, it's millingtheair at gmail.com. I did actually check it this week, but no one had emailed us. So I guess that um, no feedback is good feedback in some ways. No one's really angry about anything we've said. But yeah, yeah please get in touch. We are considering doing some live ones of these at some point in the future. Maybe it's a winter thing. We don't know. But yeah. So come up, come up with ideas for venues. Yeah. All right. I'll do. Cheers. Bye-bye. Yeah. Bye.